All right. Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to the Bitcoin Stoa. Today is October 1st. We're 9 a.m. Eastern. Um, and for any first time listeners here today, uh, the Bitcoin Stoa is a community funded platform. So if you enjoy listening, you can support the project by sending some stats to the QR code on the homepage at thebitcoinstoa.com. With that said, it is my honor to welcome Greg Foss, a fellow Canadian who has kindly donated his time this morning uh, to share some of his wisdom. So Greg, welcome to the Stoa. How great is it to be here? Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me. Awesome. So for people listening, let's just dive right into it. And for people listening who don't know who Greg Foss is, um, it'd be great for you to tell us a bit about yourself, your work, and, and how you came to discover Bitcoin. Wherever that leads us, I'm good with it because I'm curious to hear the story firsthand. Okay. Uh, well, <clears throat> I like to say that I'm old because I am. But uh, that helps in, in certain cases because, uh, you know, there's a lot of young people doing incredibly good stuff in the world, but also in the Bitcoin community. Um, and uh, I like to say that sometimes a little bit of gray hair uh, goes a long way in stuff I've seen. So what's my history? Uh, I mentioned to you in, in the intro, it's before we started recording. Uh, I grew up in Montreal. Um, I went to McGill University. Uh and studied engineering. And in honesty, I went to McGill uh, because I wanted to play uh, sports there. Um, I wasn't wed to the engineering discipline. Um, I was okay in mathematics. Uh, and I always viewed that I could switch from engineering to business, but you cannot transfer your business uh, credits back to engineering. So let's say I decided right. I wanted to go back to be an engineer. So, you know, I started engineering at McGill in 1980. Two, and uh, the truth is, I knew right away I didn't really want to be an engineer, you know. But I didn't know what I wanted to be, and sure. uh, I said, and "Sometimes okay, that's just as important, right? Knowing what you don't want to be and doing it so that you find that out is sometimes just as important." Yeah, as, yeah, uh, well said. Yeah. And so I, I said, "That's it, though. I'm going to stick with it." And one year turned into two years, turned into three years, turned into four years, and before I knew it, I'm in my final semester of. Uh, of uh, at McGill sports is uh, is done and I'm uh, I'm like good lord you know I'm here I can't believe I and I'm I'm going to pass I can't believe I'm going to get my engineering degree this is <laughs> unbelievable but I really don't want to do it sure. and so uh, I just happened to be I just happened to come down the stairs one morning in uh, in a fraternity I lived in and one of the guys in the fraternity was writing this thing called a GMAT and he was studying for it though and I'm like Grant, what, what the heck are you doing? He goes, I'm going to apply to business schools. And he also played on the same team I did. And I'm like, oh, what do you mean in business school? What the heck's a business school? I hadn't even heard of these. He goes, yeah, yeah, but you got to write this thing called a GMAT. And I'm like, okay, okay, we're going to study together. When, when do I have to write this? He goes, we have 30 days. Because this was literally at the beginning of January. And the end of January, you needed to complete your application. You had to have written the GMAT by the end of January. Okay, for it Crunch to time. for it to be uh, used as uh, entrance qualifications for the the schools you were applying to. So I'm like, wait a minute, I got to do this in the next 30 days. Okay, well we better study, right? So we studied like absolutely uh, maniacs, and uh, we wrote three different uh, exams, uh, practice exams during that time, and you're able to score them yourself, and you get your score. And I'm like, okay, I'm getting better. I'm getting better because a lot of this stuff is not engineering related. There's math in it and that I can do easily, but there's other stuff that you, you, you know, I don't even remember the questions, but a lot of them were, you know, you have to repeat the questions and understand what the right answer is a lot of times. And there's a, there's a formula, not a formula, but a 
a, a talent to it. And, but all you get, you get it from experience. Long story short, look, I wrote my, my GMAP. I did quite well. And uh, I said, okay, well now what am I going to do with this? So you could apply to three schools in Canada for a fixed sum of, I don't remember what it was, a couple of hundred bucks. I said, I'm going to apply to one school in the U S as well. Uh, just cause, and I'm like, Oh my God, how much does it cost to apply to one school in the U S it was like 250 U S dollars. And I'm like, Oh, wow, this is uh, this is a lot of money, but I'm going to go for it. And I had done, I had visited a school in upstate New York called Cornell university, which uh, is a great Ivy league institution in the U S yeah. and I did some research on their MBA program. And they said, you know, we're building an international, we want to build an international student body. I'm like, well, I'm going to take my chances here that I know I have no work experience, which is always a very important quality full-time work experience when you go and get your MBA or, you know, you're, you, the, ideally they want you to have some real life work experience, but I said, I'm going to take a chance because I'm from Canada. They're building an international business program. And sure enough, my gut feeling was right because I got accepted and I got accepted with no work experience besides summer, uh, summer engineering jobs. Uh, but I never would have been ex accepted as an American into that program. Uh, not because my GMAT wasn't good enough and my engineering marks were certainly good enough. It just was, I didn't have the work experience, but I came from Canada. So I, go, I arrive at Cornell university and I'm just in awe. Like I'm in school with these guys that are like, I have had work experience on Wall Street or, you know, with marketing companies, Pfizer's and the general mills of the world, the companies sending them back to school to get their MBA. And two years down there, 1986 to 1988, were just some of the formative, most formative years of my life. Because firstly, you, you, you meet Americans and as a Canadian, you think the two countries are very similar. Um, and they are in a lot of respects, but man, are they different in some respects as well. And it's really important to live down there. Uh, understand the difference in culture as well as uh, their um, really their thought process. And that's what you need to uh, appreciate. So two years down there, great time, um, got my degree and lived with a bunch of undergrads at the same time. So how great was that? Because I'm, a, I'm a, an, a, a, in an MBA school, so I appreciate that side, but I lived with a bunch of undergrads. Uh, because my fraternity at, at McGill had a, a similar fraternity down there, a same fraternity, but different chapter. And so I had met these guys. I had visited the campus a couple of times. I'm like, fellas, do you need a roommate? And luckily enough, an off-campus house with seven guys living in it. I was one of those seven. They were all undergrads. So I got to experience the undergrad life. So you at, got the best of both worlds. Well. You, got, you got the, the fun oh, man, part and, the, and right? the business and, end of it. But, Nick, here's the sad part of it. And I've said this in a couple of other podcasts. One of my roommates was actually killed in 9-11. He oh, worked no. on Wall Street and, and died. So there's an experience that I had that, uh, you know, yeah. touches home for a Canadian. That's not, uh, not every Canadian can appreciate the horror of that day and the, and the of loss of life and, and whatnot. But so uh, rest in peace, my roommate, Sean Lynch, um, I uh, forever remember our great experiences together. So uh, I come back to Canada after two years at, uh, at school down there, I, I had the opportunity to work on Wall Street, but I said, no, 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 I want to come back to Canada. I want to make a difference in Canada. And I started working for Good the for you for doing that, by the way, because I'm sure that's not a common um, sort of thread that people zone in on of like having a sense of meaning for going back to Canada to try and contribute to Canada, because it, I'm sure it, you get paid a lot of, you know, a lot of I'm, I'm a Street. really proud Canadian. Um, and, and I felt 
for some reason, I just felt I could make a bigger impact in Canada, you know, and, and not that I was going to make an impact, but my chances of making an impact were bigger in Canada than they were in the U.S. So I, uh, I came to work for the head office of the Royal Bank of Canada. At the time, it was still in Montreal. It was a split head office between Montreal and Toronto. So I, uh, I returned to my hometown, Montreal, and I started working at the head office of Royal Bank and uh, working directly for the CFO. All right. And a really cool group called Financial Policy and Strategy. And uh, the head of that group was a Harvard MBA, a, a Canadian kid, Harvard MBA. And honestly, it was a great experience because you really understood the uh, inner workings of a bank. And one of my first projects was to analyze the Latin American debt portfolio that the bank had accumulated over time. Now, the problem was that portfolio was basically in default because all the Latin American countries uh, had borrowed money in U.S. dollars and their currency had fallen. Or the other way to look at it is the U.S. dollar had appreciated uh, in their uh, local currency terms and their interest burden was they couldn't pay back these these loans. So the Royal Bank of Canada had, now this number sounds so small now, but in 1988, it was a lot of money. Four billion in LDC debt exposure. LDC stands for Lesser Developed Country Exposure. Most of it was to the South Americans, so Brazil, uh, Mexico, Argentina, etc. But there, it included other countries: Philippines, Vietnam. Um, anyway, four billion dollars of exposure, and on average, the debt was trading for about 25 cents of its claim or 25 cents on the dollar, which meant if you had to write down the debt or the loans to their trading value, like any trader does, the Royal Bank of Canada essentially would have had to write off $3 billion, okay? Well, 75% again, of their value three, uh, was gone. They, they, they had lost 75% of their value. So 75% of $4 billion is 3 billion. And when you write down or you take a loan loss in bank accounting, you write it off against your equity, right? Because it's it, your equity is basically your risk absorbing capital. Anyway, I'm like, okay, well, we're going to have to write down $3 billion. Yep. And I go and look at our balance sheet and I'm like, good Lord, Royal Bank does not have $3 billion of book value of equity, which meant if they had written down the loans, to the market price, Royal Bank of Canada was insolvent. Wow. Like, what? Well, what year was this? 1990? 1988. Wow. Okay. So I'm like, what the hell? I just gone through six years of school finance and all this stuff. And I come and I come to the largest financial institution in Canada and it's on the verge of bankruptcy. Like what? WTF? Like, you know, I cannot believe this. And, and, you know, I, I literally, Nick, I went to the CFO and I said, you know, we have a problem. And his answer, God love him, but he's like, I know, don't tell anybody. Um, okay. But the person that did know there was a problem was Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady, who at the time, uh, Royal Bank of Canada was not unique by any means. Every single money center bank in New York and globally was essentially in the same position. The system was bankrupt. Okay. And Treasury Secretary wow. Nicholas Brady had for the for started with Mexico restructuring the Mexican debt, had a brilliant solution where they turned the five year loan 
into a 30-year obligation that was backed by U.S. Treasury zero-coupon debt. And the way a zero-coupon debt works is you buy a 30-year bond at, let's say, 15 cents on $100, and you never get a coupon, but that 15 cents just accretes, 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 accretes back to $100 over 30 years. So if it's backed by that U.S. Treasury zero coupon, they did not have to write the debt down to the trading value. And it was an accounting gimmick to skate the global financial markets back on side. So it's just a trick. It's an accounting trick that they play it's to not, avoid. It, I called it a gimmick. It. Um, it's certainly, you know, it's a brilliant trick, you know, sure. using your word. It's, but it's accounting gimmickry. It's like yeah. at the end of the day, the bank, if you're a trader, imagine you're a trader, which after Royal Bank, I spent my whole life being a trader. I, uh, I, I would have loved to go to my boss and say, you know, I'm down all this money, but let's just pretend yeah. that I'm going to get it back over the next 30 years. So you don't have to fire me and write it down to, to market because yeah. you're an idiot, Foss. We're going to pretend that you're going to get skated back on site. Yeah. Sure. Um, Nick, it, it was, it was eye-opening. I'm then, I start to question the system. I'm like, how is this possible? Right out and, of the gate too. It's like, you just started working your art. You got thrust oh yeah. into the storm of like, this is how it works. Yeah, this is how it works. And so you get, you, you understand how levered uh, banks are. And then you start asking questions like, firstly, none of the financial analysts, the equity analysts had even figured this out. So mm. first of all, they're recommending Royal Bank stock because it pays a dividend of this much. And, you know, you got to own the banks because the banks are too big to fail. And I'm like, right. okay, hold on a second. Yeah, I understand everyone thinks they're too big to fail, but right now they've actually failed. Okay, they're failed. Now stop it. But you can't go out. It's my first job. Sure. You can't go out and call up the Montreal Gazette and go, hey, guys, guess what this kid who just <laughs> came back from the United States has discovered? We're living in a Fiat Ponzi. Yeah. But the truth was, that's the first time, Nick, that I said, our system is absolutely pooched. It's built on smoke and mirrors and the assumption that the global banks are too big to fail and will be backed by government bailouts, mm -hmm. which are fund themselves using printed money. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's it. It's okay. I understand it. Now that is what it is. And fiat is a Ponzi, but fine. Let's assume that's the way the system works. And it is, in fact, over the next 30 years when I got into trading, um, incidentally, a funny side story, I, when, when the bonds were at 25 cents on the dollar uh, and I'd done all the analysis and I, I'm like, you know, these, these bonds are actually pretty attractive. Like I, I, I went to the CFO and I'm like, what made them attractive? Uh, just so because, upside? first of all, the the certainty of, of getting your principal back or at the time, the assumed almost 100% certainty, what really was attractive is it was priced based on oil, Mexican oil prices, as well as uh, interest rates. And it just gave you a really levered opportunity to get some money back, meaning everyone else had lent money at 100 cents on the dollar. But now you had a chance to get that same claim of 100 cents on the dollar. You only had to pay 25 cents of it. And it's backed by US Treasury zero coupon. So I, I went to a mill and I go, buddy, we need to buy some of this. Like this is now attractive. This is when you want to buy. Right. And he's like, well, 
I love you, kid, but look, we blew our load. You didn't use that language. But he goes, <laughs> sure. We've already we've already blown our wad at uh, yeah. at 100. We've already pushed our bottom. limits. You don't think I'm going to get this through the risk committee, do you? And I go, I guess you're right. Now, yeah. the fact is those bonds did perform so well that they actually went at one point. We're trading at about 125 cents Whoa. on the dollar. So they actually went back through par. And that's only because interest rates, oil prices and everything. The point is, if we had bought a whack of it at 25 cents on the dollar, we would have pretty well. done okay, right? Now, uh, we didn't do it. And I left the Royal Bank, not because of that, but I, I left the Royal Bank because I wanted to become a trader. I wanted to get into markets where I could actually buy stuff at 25 cents on the dollar. Right. Now, there's a chance it goes to zero cents on the dollar, but more often than not, it recovers to a recovery value of 40 or 50 cents on the dollar. Uh, and in some cases, it does go back to, par to party, par parity. Um, and it's like so the war, it's what Warren Buffett says, right? Like the cigarette butts that you find that still have one puff left that no one wants to go near, but like they're so unattractive to so many people that they actually end up having potential that no one's really dove, in, dove into. And that sounds like what you're talking about. A little bit, except let me, let me be very careful. There is a very well-developed market in the United States for this. The okay. U.S. is always the buyer of last resort. They're always the guys that stabilize markets around the world because all other clowns buy stuff at 100 cents on the dollar and then want to sell it at 25 cents on the dollar. Whereas the U.S. guys may have lent some money at 100 cents on the dollar, but they're not averse to buying more at 25 cents on the dollar and trying to average out their exposure. Right. And even if they hadn't bought it at 100 cents on the dollar, there's a lot of guys that want to scoop in and say, okay, you chumps, you're the knuckleheads that lent at 100 cents on the dollar, but I'm going to buy it at 25 cents. It's sort of, it's, uh, it, it's better than buying uh, or, or picking up used cigarette butts. Okay. It's based on math and claims right. and law, court of law, priority of claims, for example, your listeners know that uh, unless the debt of a company is worth 100 cents on the dollar in a restructuring, the equity's got zero value, right? The priority of claims is that debt always gets paid down before your equity claim. It's just the way the laws work. Capital uh, market uh, arbitrage between the two is where I spent my life. Lots of stupid equity buyers out there. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're buying the equity of a company whose bonds are trading at 50 cents on the dollar. I'm like, I'm going to shove that equity down your throat and buy the bonds and hedge that delta, right? And so that's where I spent my life. Um, and it's, you know, a credit focused hedge funds, always knowing the susceptibility of the financial system. So it, I lived through my first financial crisis, 1988, right out of school. Wow, you don't learn this in school. Then 1998, long-term capital management. Two Nobel Prize winners on the long-term capital management team, and they're morons, okay? Yeah. They couldn't manage risk if their life depended on it, but they set up a, a company that was levered 99 to 1, they basically had $1 of capital for every $100 of bets they made. That's insane. And they were selling volatility to the street when, and volatility is insurance. They were selling insurance to the street when the world was melting down for reasons like the Thai bot and uh, Russia default and all this stuff. And long-term capital management was done. They were baked. It's over. And they had to get bailed out by Wall Street. 
crony capitalism. Well, you got two Nobel Prize winners there. You guys should have turned in your Nobel Prize because you ain't that smart, okay? You just aren't when you lever a business 99 to one and then you base your entire business model on six years of data. That's what happened at long-term capital. My God, why do you bail this shit out? Well, you had to because all of Wall Street would have failed because they had bought all this insurance from long-term capital management that long-term capital management couldn't make good on. So the Fed had to step in. So that's the second financial crisis. Then the big one, oh man, 2006, seven and eight, uh, or I was called 2007, eight and nine. I lived the great financial crisis in a risk chair that uh, was working at, at, at a hedge fund that we had actually done incredibly well in terms of setting up our, uh, our risk uh, and our insurance. But the reality was some of that insurance was questionable because the people we bought it from, they were going to fail, right? So imagine you're like, I'm on the right side of this trade, but the guy that I bought it from was Lehman Brothers. Right. Well, hold and they're on. on the verge too. They're, on, they're done. They're baked. Yeah. It's over. So then I have to run out and purchase insurance on my insurance provider. This is the circularity of the market. Um, we what survived. a Mickey Mouse system. And it, I think it just shows that like the ridiculousness that moral hazard is the norm in this industry. And the fact that no one like financial literacy, and I want to talk about this at the end um, of our conversation, but the fact that everyone is so financially illiterate that these uh, industries, the industry that is actually making the most money and doing the craziest shit and actually holds the key to literally economic collapse and often does this. Like you lived on the inside of this and saw multiple right. cycles of the house of cards falling. And right. yet we seem to constantly just say, well, let's do the same thing and let's just patch it up and put more risk in the system, put Correct. more debt in the system and, and ridiculously assume that it's not going to happen again. And like, where, like, it sounds like insanity actually. Well, I can, yeah, thank you. I, amen. Yes, that's exactly what it is. All right. So you had a chance. What essentially happens in each successive crisis, Nick, is that the risk in the financial system is transferred to the balance sheets of the government in the form of bailouts. And essentially the government becomes more risky, right? Because yeah. their debt explodes because the way they bail out the system is they print money and, and borrow uh, and use their uh, line of credit, if you will, uh, to uh, to bail out the financial system. So after 2007, 8, and 9, there really was a chance that the world could pay down the obligations that they had uh, accrued over the, the, the previous uh, financial cycles and crises. But who gets into office as a presidential candidate or a prime minister and comes in on the basis of austerity and we're going to pay down all the accumulated deficits. And by the way, it ain't going to be fun. So it doesn't happen. We don't pay down the, uh, the debt when we had a chance. In fact, we even tried to taper and the markets start having a tantrum. So not only did you not pay it down, you just kept doing what you were doing because if you stopped doing what you were doing, the markets, equity markets were going to puke. And right. the reality is a lot of the presidential candidates think of the equity markets as a ongoing um, evaluation of their uh, presidency or their, uh, their term in office. So we had this chance. We didn't do it. And it doesn't matter. Where did Foss, where was Foss living at this point? Well, in 2015, 
my hedge fund had just completed the best trade that I'd ever been involved in, where we actually did buy billions of dollars of restructured asset-backed commercial paper, which you may remember if you read any of the papers in uh, the newspapers in Canada. Oh my God, ABCP, restructured. This is toxic stuff. This has got subprime US mortgage exposure. Well, listen, the case today, Poi Plasmans Quebec had 16 billion of this and they were only 160 billion account, not only, but that's how big they were. They had 10% of their assets in this paper that when they stopped rolling their commercial paper, the whole market stopped functioning. And the price of that paper went from, call it 99 cents on the dollar, and it fell as low as 20 cents on the dollar. And if anyone had done their math, which we did, and went through the restructuring, you would have understood two things. First of all, at 20 cents on the dollar, it was the simplest buy I've ever seen in my life. Okay. The chance of it not recovering at least 50, 60, 70 cents on the dollar was minuscule. Mm. Okay. The flip side was these idiots that were buying it at 99 cents on the dollar were getting carved by Wall Street because Wall Street set up a structure that should have actually been only 90 cents on the dollar. Yet Canada was paying 99 cents on the dollar and Wall Street was making all the vigorous. Okay. So they raped the case that they pull. And the case that they pull, as often is with large financial institutions and pension funds, just got smacked stupid. And they said, oh my God, okay, well, we're going to write it down. So I grew up in Quebec and my parents were still alive at that time. I'm like, fuck, excuse the language, but seriously, okay, we can say fuck. All, it's an adult podcast. All, of the, all of the pensioners in Quebec just lost 10% of their uh, assets on a mark to market basis. But what did the case do? Much like what did the bank not do when I was at Royal Bank? They didn't buy anymore at 25 cents on the dollar. No, 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 no. They sold. They're done. Someone had to buy it. They got scared, and I bought basically. and bought and our fund bought and bought and bought and bought. And guess what? Those bonds did mature. The restructured bonds matured at 100 cents on the dollar. Wow. And so we had completed that trade. And I'm like, I'm not really sure how I'm going to follow this one up because yeah. <laughs> that was the best trade that I'd ever been a part of. It was simple. It was easy to analyze. Well, I've got to be careful. The information was there to analyze it. It's just that too many people were too lazy or too scared by the headlines they wrote, read in the newspaper. So I wasn't just buying this paper from big pension funds. I was buying it from university endowment funds in Canada. I don't want to name the funds that I bought it from, but man, these are funds that had been donated to these universities to fund their uh, various academic departments. And they had invested in this supposedly safe commercial paper yeah. And they lost 75% of their value, sometimes 50%. And then guys are like, oh my God, it was down at 25 and now it's at 50. I'm going to yeah. sell now because my, I didn't lose 75%. So I'm okay losing 50%. Sure. The reality was if they had actually done their homework to begin with, they wouldn't have bought it at 99 cents on the dollar, but they might've bought it at 50 cents on the dollar to get a hundred cents back. Right. That's all I've been involved in, in my whole life. And uh, I could hedge it very easily. I, I wish I could walk you through this. It actually involved hedging only one name in the structure. And that was Hewlett Packard. All I had to do was own 
default protection on Hewlett Packard. And I was basically guaranteed that my asset back commercial paper would go back to a hundred cents on the dollar. God darn it. Isn't that crazy that you could do that simple an analysis? Yeah. And there was 32 billion, Nick, there was 32 billion of this available in Canada. I cannot believe the opportunity. We couldn't get as many Canadians involved as we should have. Well, why? Because they read the newspapers that asset back commercial paper is now the most toxic thing. Like imagine that same words you hear about Bitcoin. It's toxic. Fuck you. Okay. Do some work. You lame ass reporters and understand that this is actually an opportunity. Anyway. Well, what you're saying really brings to mind this whole notion of the asymmetry of knowledge and how you can uncover opportunities that almost seem too good to be true. If you just put the energy into looking into it, and I think the parallel with Bitcoin is that if you just take time to understand money, if you just take time to understand what this thing is, not even like deep, deep down the rabbit hole, like just enough to, to, to understand that it's better than what currently exists and to actually understand the current problem most people don't even realize is there, um, that asymmetry allows you access to a trade, right? Trading crap money for sound money that almost seems too good to be true. And once you realize it, you want to tell everyone. And so let's let's go, like, when did you get into Bitcoin? How did, how did Bitcoin fall into your lap and how has that process been for you so far? So it's a great question. Listen, and I'm right at the point in my career where, so I leave, right? So our hedge fund actually gets bought by a a firm in Montreal and two years to the, the day after we got bought, I said, okay, guys, I'm done. Uh, I, I need to leave. I was under pressure from uh, uh, trading for 30 years uh, wears down your, uh, your, your, your system. Right. And I was, sure. I had, I had been dealing with uh, some emotional issues. Both of my parents had passed away in short order. I'm the oldest kid in the family. So it's assumed to be my responsibility to take care yep. of all that stuff. They were still living back in Montreal. Uh, so I had this uh, uh, issue where I'm living in Toronto and they, they live in Montreal and I need to help, uh, you know, get them, not get them settled, but settle up on the, uh, on, on their life. And uh, I was also dealing with the pressure of the job because once you, you hit, like you hit a grand slam, other people are like, well, Foss is up again. He's going to hit a grand slam again. And I'm like, yeah, it's a lot of pressure. It's pressure. And by the way, sometimes you're just plain lucky, right? You got to be lucky. Uh, People who work hard tend to be lucky, but like, there's a lot of stuff about being in the right place at the right time. Very, very clearly look. And I'll tell you also, I was dealing with anxiety and depression because of the pressures that this was bringing on me. And one of the things I said is I got to get out of the trading business. So I did. And I was able to go back to Montreal and help out with, uh, well, not just help out, but put everything together properly. I was happy about that. And while I was in Montreal, I met a guy uh, who's a local Montrealer who I'd never met when I lived in Montreal, but we had tons of mutual friends who wanted to start up a fund for Bitcoin. And I'm like, well, okay, that's fine. Tell me about this thing called Bitcoin. I'd heard about it in the past. I'd never once researched it. And this was in 2016. And he introduces me to Bitcoin. And I'm like, everyone, I'm like, okay, look, Bitcoin, it's a Ponzi. Why do I say that? Only because I'd read it in the newspaper. And I think I know something without even doing any research on it. And he's like, no, 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 look, there's 21 million of these things. It's backed by math and code. And most importantly, here's how it works. And he took me to this uh, internet page called tradeblock.com. Now, if you haven't watched the blockchain in action, as an engineer, I looked at this thing and I'm like, it's like magic. 
it's magic, dude. I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm like, I'm sitting in one of my, so I'm a partner in eight Irish pubs in Montreal and, (laughs) and I'm sitting in one of my pubs. Okay. And I love the pubs. Okay. I just love the pubs. You just, you, you, you you know, I, when I go to the social hub, it's like this missing, like the idea of meeting public meeting spaces where converse this is like what the stoa was back in greece is like a public domain anyone can go you can have conversations everyone's welcomed and respected and it's like that's where shit gets worked out in a a human way well nick it was exactly that so he's 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 sending he's he's giving me this uh little pitch and i'm like i still remember it was a sunday night and i'm sitting there and i'm like this is friggin' remarkable like i love this thing and I just went hard and I just started <laughs> studying. And that was in 2016. And uh, Bitcoin was at around 800 bucks US a coin. And I did all sorts of analysis. And I said, this is the best asymmetric trade opportunity I have ever seen, which meant. Define, define asymmetric trade for those who don't know, because the listenership for this, and I probably should have yeah. said this before, is people who... Um, might not know the deep technical stuff in both finance and Bitcoin, but simply right. want to hear conversations amongst people who have an understanding talking about broad topics. Like one thing I want to ask you later is like Bitcoin culture. What does that mean? So the audience is people who want to okay. hear conversations might not be technically savvy sure. in both finance or Bitcoin, but want to hear stories. Yeah. So, so great question. So here's, here's what an asymmetric trade is. And firstly, I need you, your listeners then to understand we have a problem with this thing called fiat currency which is backed by nothing. In 1971, fiat US dollars were taken off the gold standard. Used to be that your dollar was backed by gold. Now, after 1971, it was taken off the gold standard and thus allowed all these shenanigans to start, much like I uncovered when I worked at the Royal Bank of Canada, right? Right. So I'm not here. I'm going to tell you I think Bitcoin's the best asymmetric trade I've ever seen. Before I do that, though, I need your audience to understand that the fiat system is dangerous. It's dangerous as a store of value, meaning if you're storing your wealth and the value of your time and energy in a fiat currency, that wealth is going to get carved away from you over the period of time where they continue printing more fiat to solve issues like the financial crises that we've been through. The value of your dollar debases. And with I want certainty. To, with, there's not very well, things that are certain. 100% certain. But certainty, that's certainty. This is what I said. This is 100% certain now. It's only mathematics. But here's what I need you guys to understand. This resonates with me. In 1986, let's just say that years before I, uh, I graduated from McGill, I did have some engineering jobs. But prior to that, I also did some pretty intense manual labor, including things like reshingling roofs. Okay. If you guys have never reshingled a roof, let me tell you, that is some intense heat and real labor. And Hard on work. those days, on those days, I may have made 40 bucks. Okay. Like I would work 10 hours and make four bucks an hour and <laughs> it was cash and yep. I made 40 bucks. Okay. And we improved the value of that house by my time and energy by more than the 40 bucks I put in. That's what's supposed to do. Otherwise people wouldn't reshingle their roofs. Right. And the flip side is I did not take that $40 and put it in something like gold. No, I just put it in my bank account. Now, over time, I have made more money that I never had to take that $40 and use it 
until the day I retire. Right. The problem is the $40 that I keep in a bank account over a period of 30 years is now worth about $10.15, okay? And I promise you that the value of my time and energy that I put into that roof Didn't is worth way more than $10.15 in today's yep. dollars, okay? And that's all that you're trying to do. So understand, people, that you need to put your- so theft. That's effectively theft. Or um, stupidity on the part of Foss. So I'm going to say Foss is an idiot. How about that? I'm not going to call them theft. I'll just say Foss is, a, is an idiot. And I, I understand stood the value of gold, but I never truly became a gold bug. Okay. But then I found this thing called Bitcoin. And the thing, the beauty of Bitcoin and why is it an asymmetric trade? Okay. I've, I always approach things with a probability analysis where I say stuff like in an investment, I say, I can never be certain about the outcome of that investment, but I put probability outcomes on them. And therefore it gives me comfort. Like if I'm going to a racetrack or paying, playing poker, you just play odds. And over time, if you are buying stuff at the right price and cheaply enough versus the probability of the expected outcome, you're going to make money. And that's how I've managed this. Now, by the same token, look, if you're on the wrong side of the trade, you get the heck out. That's what you got to do. You get the heck out. You don't hope that it'll come back. If the probabilities have increased that you're going to lose your money, see ya. You're done. You take your loss. You move on. Because the stupidest traders out there sell their winners and hold on to their losers. Right. And essentially, though, that's a human emotion, right? You don't want to admit you made a mistake. So you hold your loser in hope that it comes back. And then the flip side is I want to feel good because I was a good trader and I want to crystallize that game. Because what if it goes up in price, but then comes right back down? Mm -hmm. Now, an asymmetric trade, though, like Bitcoin, has the odds of the probability outcome so weighted in your favor versus the price that you pay today. So I'll run through this really quickly without telling you how I get to my $2 million price target on Bitcoin, US dollars, $2 million in today's dollars. Imagine that I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid so badly that that probability is actually an outcome. It's not 100% certain, but it's a potential outcome. But it's grounded and, in information. This is what. Oh, I yeah. Think no, look, I've done miss. my work. I promise you, I can yeah. show you with a lot of confidence why I think that price target is easily attainable. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it is attainable. So, in other words, $2 million as an asymmetric outcome is very attractive for something to me that's trading at 40, whatever it is, 40 something thousand today. Okay. It's so amazing to have that tail, the, the outcome, which is called a long tail in a probability distribution. You look for those opportunities your entire career, and you may have a chance to do two or three of them in your entire career. You may have been tipped off that Amazon was the greatest thing ever, and you were smart enough to hold it from time zero till today. Yeah. Only one or two people have actually probably held Amazon stock from time zero to today. And one of them's Jeff Bezos and the it other one's his mother who he manages the money for. Okay. And everyone <laughs> else bought Amazon and doubled their money and then sold it. And they're like, I doubled my money. 
Yep. Well, if you had held it, you could have been a thousand times your money. Okay. So this is what a, a, an asymmetric opportunity is. And Bitcoin, in my opinion, is the best asymmetric trade opportunity I've ever seen. Better than asset-backed commercial paper at 25 cents on the dollar. Better than even Amazon. If I had been lucky enough to actually buy Amazon, I believe Bitcoin is a better risk-adjusted opportunity than even Amazon was. So this is why I need to promote it. And I need to promote it on a probabilities basis and just say to people, do your work. And if you still own zero Bitcoin, you are actually taking more risk than somebody who has a proper portfolio allocation in Bitcoin relative to the potential outcome. Because what happens if Bitcoin does go to my price target? Well, the people that don't own it, won't be able to afford the stuff that all the Bitcoiners will be able to afford because they have this store of value that's so darn pristine and uh, valuable. And so remember that. I'm not telling you to put a hunt. I was just going to say like my experience and the one that I I seem to be, seems to be resonating with people that I talk to is that if your, your learning curve from zero understanding to deep understanding of Bitcoin seems to correlate with this inversion of your risk perception where the, if you know very little then bitcoin can seem very risky mostly for the same reason that you said where most of the information that's fed to you from mainstream is that it is risky it's not good it's volatile all the you know all these negatives that actually aren't aren't grounded in reality they're grounded in a shallow understanding yes, and sir. as you understand more and more and more not only does does bitcoin become less risky at a certain point my risk perception inverted such that i'm taking a huge risk by being by not being in bitcoin and I'm taking the more money I have in fiat, the more risk I'm taking. And that sounds so foreign to people who don't yeah. understand it, but that's, yeah. that's the reality. Yeah. And so it is this really, because everything we do as humans is, you know, you talk about probabilities and I think people discount how probability is a fundamental element in human existence, right? Like I'm not going through the math in my brain, but when I go for a walk outside, I'm unconsciously running through the probability based on my previous experience that there's probably a low probability if I walk on sidewalks that I'm going to get hit by a car. Right. But if 50% of people walking on sidewalks got hit by a car, I would not go for a walk because my risk profile <laughs> would be different. And so we, we run through probabilities yeah. and, and risk subconsciously based on our experience. But when, you know, and I think people disconnect from, from the word probability because they just don't cross it very much, but it, it's part of our life. It's just not as blatant as when you actually look at the math itself. And you know, it seems like your engineering background finally came full circle and gave you like a unique view of Bitcoin because you're like, this is this is literally a thermodynamically sound engineering invention. Yeah. And if you don't have an engineering mind, you often don't pick that up. And you're like, oh, shit, this is like, does anyone else know the secret? This is yeah, crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, man. And, you know, some of the people that are the deepest thinkers in this uh, space our engineers, uh, I'll throw out uh, Lynn Alden, I'll throw out uh, Michael Saylor. Yeah, uh, people who are, they're, they're, they're engineers, they understand, uh, you know, con- the rule of conservation of energy. So if we want to get a little deeper, I think of Bitcoin as digital energy, okay? And, and yeah. that's, that resonates with me as an engineer. That's what it is. It's a, an ability to store the value of your energy that I put into those yeah. roofs uh, 30 years ago. If I had stored that energy in digital energy, which is Bitcoin, I would be way better off than if I had stored that energy in a paper currency with no intrinsic value called fiat. Okay. That's leaky. 
I love the term leaky because it's literally just leaching out. It's leaking. Are you all an engineer? How do you stores. know these, these terminologies? Did you do engineering or? I didn't do engineering, but I've been, I went through this period of time at the start of this year where I lead this health network and I'm the primary steward of the resources. And we okay. had a bunch of cash in an account. And I looked at the numbers of the M2 money supply from Jan 20 to Attaboy. 2021. Yeah. And I was like, 18 and percent of the purchasing power of this cash reserve we're holding, which we don't have projects to put in right now, just got wiped I, because you, someone felt beautiful. like printing money. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, well, I need to learn about this is an urgent problem to solve. And I, so I literally well for done. 60 days, I soaked up everything I could from Michael Saylor, every video that I could find <laughs> or podcast. And uh, we essentially executed a strategy to put all of our treasury reserves into a Bitcoin endowment. And oh, wow. that made me feel like very, that made me sleep a lot better at night. So I was like, that was a gargantuan problem that we had to solve and okay. that we just solved. And um, so a lot of those terms just come from, say, listening to really smart Beautiful. people in it. Well, that's it his, doesn't, yeah. That's his so story amazed. because you say leaky. So fiat yeah. is a leaky system. That's exactly yeah. a sailorism, right? That's what yeah. it is. Closed systems like a hydraulic system can't have leaks because right. hydraulics don't work if you have leaks yeah. and system fails. That's correct. And so uh, it, look, it, he has some beauties. Um, I don't want to lose your listeners, but I try and always break stuff down to uh, the first principles and engineering yeah. or mathematics is the first principles. Okay. So that's why I'm comfortable with it. Uh, the asymmetry of the, of the opportunity is amazing. And let's just go one step further. And then I want to walk through you guys with you guys, why I think $2 million us of Bitcoin is not outrageous. Sure. And I'll do this in less than five minutes. Okay. Look, uh, if Bitcoin's digital energy, which I believe it is, it's a great way to describe it. Other people describe it as digital gold. I'm like, it's, it's better than gold. And by the way, energy is the most important contribution to human prosperity and, uh, and, uh, quality of life. Every time there's an advancement in, uh, energy efficiency, humans tend to, uh, to, to benefit. And you yeah. can look through time. It's the key to human you know, flourishing is energy. Exactly. Okay. So Bitcoin is digital energy. Um, it's, there's going to be a time when I believe energy products like oil and natural gas will be priced in Bitcoin. Why? Well, it's only natural that if you're selling your valuable natural resources for something called fiat, which is debasing, you're thinking, why am I doing this? And there will be a country who wants to get paid in Bitcoin for their valuable natural resources. You want to get digital energy for natural resource energy. Okay, that makes sense. Well, what happens if that happens is the US dollar as global reserve asset starts getting challenged. The petrodollar system starts getting challenged. And today there are US $900 trillion of financial assets in the world. Okay, that's all real estate, all bonds, all equities, all gold or commodities, all currencies, etc. US dollar 900 trillion. Well, if energy becomes priced in Bitcoin, do you think it's crazy that 5% of total global financial assets in today's dollars would gravitate towards the natural resource reserve asset, which is Bitcoin? 5% of 900 trillion. And I'm like, I don't think that's crazy at all. What is 5% of 900 more is trillion? Even, like, I think in terms of what's reasonable, 5% is low as shit. Okay, so it's let's so start low. with 5%, Nick. Okay, sure, so it's 5% sure. of 900 trillion is $45 trillion. Now, I, there's a lot of zeros involved in this, but 45 trillion divided by the fixed 
and certain supply of Bitcoin over time is 21 million. Even without counting the people who lost their coins. That's okay. Let's just go with all we know. Uh, Because if you could find those coins, you know, it's not saying they don't come back. You just know that it'll never exceed 21 million. 45 trillion divided by 21 million is over $2 million of Bitcoin. That's how I get to my price target. Yeah. Not that difficult. And you were about to say 5% FOSS, you're you're way low. That's a conservative total adjustable market. So look, 2 million then, de facto, you're telling me that 2 million is a low price target. And I'm going to tell you, okay. But right now it's trading at 40 something. I know. It's crazy. Damn it. Guys, don't overthink <laughs> this. Okay. So look, this is all about managing risk. That's how I've spent my whole life. And yeah. I'll just tell you that people who own bonds right now failed mathematics. Yep. Right. I have never seen worse value in fixed income instruments in my entire 30 years of trading fixed income instruments. Anyone who owns bonds right now, whether they're treasury bonds, U.S. Treasury or Canadian bonds or Government of Canada, provincials, high yield bonds, you're all a bunch of idiots, okay? <laughs> you have failed mathematics. Yeah. And you need bond, to take some market? of your exposure in your bonds and move it into Bitcoin because bonds are a fiat contract. And that fiat contract is programmed to debase. That's it. That's all I want to tell you. And how do I hone my skills? I don't do anything differently than just study. Over 32 years, I continue to learn. I don't close my brain to new opportunities. That's it. And what's, so on that topic, what is your, you know, like my learning practice, let's call it uh, for, for being a student of Bitcoin has kind of varied and ebbed and flowed throughout times. Um, What is your current learning practice and what is your uh, preferred medium? Like, do you like to read? Do you like to listen? Do you like to watch? And, yeah, and when I, do you plug that in? Like, do you have anything regimented right now? Uh, not regimented. You know what I do is I keep a very open mind. Uh, I, I read research that criticizes my, uh, my, my, my thesis Good because I don't want confirmation bias. I want to find someone who's actually going to poke a hole in, in, in what I've come to. And the funniest thing I'll tell you is like, everyone says, well, what if, you know, so China's bandit, firstly, Go do anything that a communist, go the opposite way that anything that a communist government does. And generally you're going to make money. Okay. Yeah. It's so, That's a so, signal so to look fact, into it. Not you, to you know, it. So here's the funny thing though. But so people will say, well, what if the U S bans it? And I'll be like, yeah, but they can't stop it. They can ban it, but I don't think they will. But all I'm telling you is that's the nine. I'm the 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 market right now is giving me basically a two percent chance that Bitcoin will achieve my price target. And how do I get that? Two million dollars times two percent is forty thousand bucks. Well, that's the trading price of Bitcoin right now. Basically, the market's telling me there's a ninety-eight percent chance it's going to zero and a two percent chance it'll achieve my price target. And I'm like, the market is. Is, is, is dopey. Yeah, I like those odds. Ship it Me in. Too. And people will say stuff like, Foss, what if this happens? And I'll say, that's in the 98% chance. And I'm okay with it because I think that you're, it could be a 70% chance that it goes to zero, but it ain't 98. And you got to give me the flip side. If I give you a 95% chance it goes to zero, will you give me a 5% chance it goes to 2 million? And most people will say, yes, I'll do that. Well, you do a quick analysis and you realize that implies that Bitcoin should be trading at $100,000 today. 
that person doesn't even understand what the odds they just gave me indicates that they should be buying it, even though they think with 95% chance it's going to zero. That's what's called an asymmetric outcome, Nick. And I don't, I can't describe it any other way, you guys. It's, I, I've said it this way, maybe this will resonate with you. It's like going to the horse track and you've been given the trifecta. You know, with a high degree of certainty, because you've studied these horses, that they're going to come in first, second, and third. Doesn't matter the order. These are the three strongest horses. And you know the odds are probably five to one, meaning there's a one in five chance that you, your trifecta will come in. But the horse track is saying it's one in a hundred. You're like, well, okay, one in a hundred means you're giving me a hundred to one odds and I think it's five to one. Okay, I buy, right? And what happens at a horse track? If, you, if you're buying that, the odds makers are like, oh shit, somebody knows something. So that goes from a hundred to one down to 70 to one down to 10 to one. And if it's still at 10 to one and you believe it's five to one, you're supposed to still buy it. And this is the reality that people don't take to the financial markets that they understand at the horse track. It's really, really crazy. Yeah. Right. And, and it's like counting cards. It's like anything where you play probabilities when you're playing blackjack, you don't know what the next cards come over, but you know, based on a probability of you seeing already that three tens have come out of the, uh, the dealer's deck, you can count cards and know what the chances of the last 10 coming out are based on 40 cards being left. It's, it's not that hard. Yet it's people not, use it. Yeah. And it's funny because it's like when you, you know, first of all, the whole banning thing, it's like I've started to, when people say, well, what if it gets banned? And what I say is like, well, all you have to do is go one layer deeper in your learning to actually realize when you say ban, a country banning Bitcoin really just means that country has decided to make it harder for the people of that country. Correct. And this is a global currency. So not the whole Correct. world, the people yeah. of that country, it's now harder for them to acquire Bitcoin. It is not impossible. They cannot stop it. They cannot, all they can do is make it more expensive. And, for the and why do country. they ban it? Nick, why do they ban it? Because they're, they're scared. They, yeah. they are scared that people who understand Bitcoin realizes that the system that they're promoting is actually the one that's dangerous, meaning the fiat system is the one that's dangerous. Yeah. And you'll say, Foss, stop it. Why is it dangerous? And I'll say, rewind and start at time zero on Nick's podcast because I've just run through it for 45 minutes why right. the fiat system is the one that's dangerous, right? Yeah. And it's, it is really, it's only limited by people's um, willingness to learn. Correct. Because the more you learn, the more conviction you get. Correct. And I've gotten to the point where like I have my probability in my mind of where Bitcoin is going, the likelihood of it um, over the long term. And I think that's an important asterisk to put Absolutely. because people get blinded by the fact that it, it is volatile. Uh -huh. This is what happens when a brand new financial revolution, a brand new monetary invention gets created. Uh -huh. Everyone who is looking into this is determining the value of this new thing uh, at different rates. And right know. now, only a small yeah. percentage of planet Earth has actually done that yeah, in, so a, in, good, a, yeah. in a knowledgeable way. Yeah. And everyone's going to catch up. I mean, I trust that we have a smart mm -hmm. world that does dumb things no, and no, takes no. a long time to work at learning. And not so everyone will catch that... up, Nick. I'm afraid not everyone will catch up. And the reality <laughs> is people are intellectually lazy. They'd rather spend time watching. Like, I love the Blue Jays and everything, but my goodness, look, 
the probability of the Blue Jays achieving your dream is so much lower than the probability of Bitcoin achieving its dream. You yeah. shouldn't have been watching last night's game. Okay. You should probably have been studying Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, go Blue Jays, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, people waste their time when they have a chance of actually not being intellectually lazy. And then if they are intellectually lazy, they listen to these other conflicted people like Charlie Munger from Berkshire Hathaway, who's 94 years old, and he's going to comment on technology. I don't yep. think so, Charlie. And then yeah. secondly, by the, the way, Charlie, how much bank stock you own in Berkshire Hathaway that'll actually be decimated by the success of Bitcoin. And then you realize why he goes out and calls it rat poison squared. Okay. Conflicted, poor advice from a 94 year old who, you know, let's, I, I, I just can't say it in another way. He doesn't yeah. get it. He doesn't get technology. Okay. Full stop. So I'm not calling out Berkshire Hathaway. I'm calling out the intellectual and conflicted laziness of yep. a rat poison squared comment. Yeah. And I think it's sad, right? Because I mean, if he, it literally, if Munger took a trip to El Salvador and saw oh, what yeah. is going 100%. on there and saw yeah. that, oh, this is actually a humanitarian thing. This right. is like much more than just um, a, like a simplistic oh, yeah. investment. So idea. much more. It doesn't, it wouldn't take much um, for them to kind of see that, like, this isn't what you think it is. Uh, are you even interested? Like, let's be a little bit honest here. Are you even interested in understanding it? Or are you, do you have your blinders on because right. this is something that you've never seen before and you think because you haven't seen it, it's not good. And it's like, well, or it's even bigger than that. I got to call this out. It's because they own so much bank stock. It's like sure. West, they hold, they, they probably own some Western Union because they're so stupid yeah. that. They don't understand how Western Union is actually raping and pillaging the remittance yeah. process. And, and so, they don't understand that Twitter just did a software update that makes Western oh yeah. Union um, yeah. basically blockbuster. Oh yeah. And it's like, sorry, but not sorry. Yeah. Okay. But that, that Western Union still has a market capitalization of $5 billion. There's $5 billion there for people to short that down <laughs> to yeah. a more proper price uh, uh, valuation. Uh, Western Union... You know, if they're smart, they could embrace these payment rails, but uh, they're not going to be smart. They're they're going to be like the blockbuster, right? They're going to be like okay. Rim. They're going to be like BlackBerry that would say, "Oh, don't worry, the Apple iPhone will never be used for business." Sure. Okay. Good yeah. work. And look where they good are work. today. Good work. That used to be Canada's most valuable technology company. Good work. Like, <laughs> I hate it. I hate it because intellectual laziness and hubris is yeah. the bane of a good trader. I agree, and. Maybe let's go somewhere different. So, I, you know, when I talk about Bitcoin, people, I always say, you know, Bitcoin is more than just um, a monetary network. Bitcoin is also a community. And, yes. um, and communities inevitably at, at, throughout time will develop their own culture, right? Whether you're deciding actively to develop that culture or not, it develops. Yes. And so if someone says, you know what, when someone asks you about Bitcoin culture, because I get this question sometimes, how would you describe Bitcoin culture based on your experience in this community so far? Because you are active in the community. Uh -huh. You're, you know, I think everyone who's actively working to spread the word about Bitcoin, which yeah. is, you know, like you're taking time this morning to do that, yeah. um, is helping to usher what the culture will be. And we're basically building the foundation of the next century, yes. um, the, the, the cathedral of money for the next century. We are laying the foundation. Like we are the we're the first round of Masons that have been asked to start to build this thing. And so we're literally building the culture into the, into the, this monist, this, um, this massive, massive cathedral that the future of humanity will all end up needing to use by right. either by because they want to, or eventually because they need to. And so what does Bitcoin culture mean to you? What comes to mind? You know, that was beautiful. What you just said, and it brought me back to, um, 
I, I, I'm not a, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual, I'm not very religious, but I did visit Thanks. Barcelona and I went to that cathedral in Barcelona and I'm forgetting the name of it, but they've been constructing it for the last, I'm going to say, is it possible they've been constructing it for like 400 years or something sure. like that? And it's never stopped. Right? They're never like, going to finish it. All right? right. It's almost certain that they're, but I will tell you, it's absolutely brilliant in its engineering and its beauty. Um, anyway, that's a cathedral that I generally don't, uh, I, I, I love churches. Visiting Europe is beautiful, but it, it's crazy. You're right. It is a cathedral. So what is Bitcoin to me? Firstly, Bitcoin to me is not about me, Foss, 58 years old. It's about my three kids. Okay. I want to transfer them uh, a chance at a, um, a, a lifestyle that's going to be better than mine. Um, and I want to do that. I've worked hard. Okay. But I am privileged. I, I didn't start off as privileged. Oh, I was very privileged. I had two great parents. They gave me everything I ever needed, but you know, we didn't have money that was, uh, you know, throwaway money. Um, and, uh, but I worked hard. I've worked on Bay street and wall street. I think I've done okay in life. Um, the most important thing though, for me is my children. And it doesn't matter how much money I can accumulate. If my kids, uh, go off the rails, um, the problem with my children versus my opportunity was they are entering into a world that's a lot less, uh, uh, favorable for, uh, for them, uh, versus when I was growing up. But what I want to give them is some of my accumulated, uh, hard work. And the best way I can do that is through Bitcoin. Okay. I also own gold. I also own silver. I also own real estate. I own other hard assets as well, but Bitcoin I view is the best way to transfer weight wealth over time and space. Okay. Right. You transfer this over time and space. Why? Because it's the best technology for doing it. It's portable, it's transferable, it's divisible. It's all the things that you want in a perfect store of value. Backed by math and code and the world's most secure and strongest computer network. I'm like, okay, I got to own some of this. <laughs> so the Bitcoin community, though, is full of people of various uh, uh, levels of uh, privilege, full of people of various levels of education, full of some people that have dropped out of university, young kids like Dylan LeClaire, who I don't know if you know who that is. I do. Uh, but Dylan is absolutely brilliant. And he he's going to be on the to, Stoa. I want to talk to him. Okay. He's great. I would be happy to, uh, to make that intro um, if you don't have a, a line into him already. So he's 19 or 20 years old. He dropped out of University of Vermont after one year because he didn't want, as he termed it, the Keynesian brainwashing that is uh, produced in the in the traditional educational system. And he's now writing research that is top notch. OK, yeah. and he knows so much more than I did when I was his age um, uh, about the global financial system. He knows so much more than I do, even when I was 45. Well, he hasn't had to unlearn all the brainwashing. Right? There like, you go. I think that like I come from a background in health. Yeah. Um, and I was classically trained as a physio. And I realized that in order to learn health, I actually had to unlearn diagnosis and symptom management. I had to unlearn sick care to learn health. Wow. And th that's a big obstacle, right? Because you have this bias of, well, I paid a shitload of money and invested a lot is. of my energy yeah. into paying for this piece of paper that I'm now realizing is actually the biggest obstacle to me understanding wow. what I went there to learn in the first place. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, uh, there's someone in my family that works in finance and it seems like that working in finance 
is uh, has essentially created a brick wall around your ability to expand and be open-minded to Bitcoin. Because what I've realized is that to understand Bitcoin, you must implode your current worldview of finance in order to give yourself permission to learn Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And that's just too hard for a lot. They've invested so much time and energy yeah. and belief in this yeah system, which is fragile, but it's inconvenient to admit to yourself that it's fragile and that it doesn't work anymore and yeah. to start over. Yeah. And so for someone like Dylan, it's like he has unlimited uh, access to information. He right. has the crazy world of Bitcoin Twitter, which a well-curated Twitter feed is like better than any college education. And it's free. It's free yeah. people. Um, yeah. And he doesn't have to unlearn anything. He's learning a fresh perspective of the yeah. new financial world that we are moving towards. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's amazing to see 19 year olds know yeah. so much. Uh, and it gives me hope that that's the kind of person that's shaping the True. world we're going to live in. And it's like, that's some good shit. I'm not sure how old you are, Nick, but it was so well said. Um, uh, so I find strength in those young kids, uh, 24 year old, uh, Jack Maulers or 25. I'm not sure how old he is, but he's yeah. pretty darn young. Uh, but even some of the old guard, um, I called out last night, uh, Adam back from uh, Blockstream, uh, who's older, but he's, he's one an OG. of the, OG, the original gangster. Uh, yeah. He was probably part of the group of 10 that was part of the uh, the guys. Probably. I'm not saying for sure. I mean, I'm he was in Stoke's white paper for hash cash. Like that dude is, it's, is a he's serious just brilliant, person. Right? And what's yeah. he doing? He's actually trying to bring ASICs chip manufacturing from the communist controlled areas yep. of the world back to the West, which is good for... Um, uh, good for everything. security for national security. It's good for the car industry. It's good for all sorts of things that we have successfully offshored to essentially some of our not trusted uh, confidants or counterparties. Sure. So, you know, Bitcoin can solve so many things, but I just want to get back to the community. So there's young kids like that. Then the most influential gentleman I've ever met, bar none in my life, is a man called Jeff Booth, who is a Vancouver based author of the best book I've ever read called The Price of Tomorrow. Yes. And he has actually sat in a risk chair, meaning he was the CEO of a company that was going to change the world. He actually was a precursor to home, uh, uh, to, to uh, home depot uh, uh, supply, HD supply. He was a precursor to Amazon. He was using artificial intelligence to create algorithms for repurchasing and it didn't mm -hmm. succeed, but he sat in that chair and he managed risk to the point where he put his entire life savings into this company that failed. And he, as he says it, well, he was okay with it, but at the time he wasn't. But in hindsight, it allowed him to open his mind as to what technology is going to change the world, as well as what is wrong with the current fiat system. So if it wasn't for Bitcoin Twitter, and if it wasn't for Bitcoin and me searching out learning through Bitcoin Twitter, I never would have met a fellow Canadian uh, called Jeff, uh, named Jeff Booth, who I honestly believe is probably uh, the most solid individual I've ever met in my life in, in, in so many different capacities. And he says it simply, he's not in Bitcoin for the money. He is in Bitcoin to make the world a better place. And I can't say it any better than that. All right. This is a guy who's, I never even asked him his age, although we did spend four hours together. Uh, actually, it was close to eight hours together in a car drive from Montreal down to Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, and then right. back for a Nothing like a road trip to create a bond. Oh, buddy. It was just 
eight hours of pure learning and laughter and, 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 and not just talking about uh, Bitcoin, but just talking about how we can help change the world uh, for the positive. And, you know, his, his uh, stuff is uh, contagious in his sincerity, sincer- in his sincerity or sincerity. How do you say it? He's so sincere you want. that, yeah. that um, you can feel it. Right. And that's all I'm trying to do. I, I have a different approach than he has. He's like the, He's calm and collected. And I'm like the idiot trader. That's like, oh, what's the matter with you guys? Like, you know, shake people's You're like hand. yin and yang of the, of that's, the, that's what we are a little the, bit. And, that symbol, yeah. right? And it's, uh, you need both because you complement each other, right? Well, One, I appreciate that. Counterbalance each other. And we have been on podcasts where we do, uh, do a pretty good one to counterpunch. Uh, nice. uh, and, and here's what I know is um, the Bitcoin community. There are guys like Jeff Booth and then other guys who are more, um, We'll call them rebels, uh, you know, Bitcoin maxis. But that being said, that's what makes a community, right? It's It's got people from all walks of life, all religions, all shapes and sizes, all colors, and it's making the world a better place. And this is why I'm excited to be involved in this community. And I, why don't I ask you a question? Um, what's your background? How old are you? Where did you go to school, et cetera? So I'm born, it's funny you mentioned, started to mention 1988. I'm born in 88, so I'm 30. I think that's 33. Uh, I come from a background in health. I'm trained as classically as a physio, practiced for a couple of years, opened a clinic, uh, and realized that the practice of physio uh, didn't align with my motivation to actually help people with their health, right? Like okay. I'm helping someone's shoulder feel a little bit better, but I'm not helping them understand why does the shoulder hurt in the first place? How can they make it not hurt? Because that wasn't taught to me in school. And so, um, you know, feet were like this really big red flag for me where it's like everyone that comes in the clinic has fucked up feet we're not supposed to be this way. What's the problem? And you quickly realize that shoes are not made in the shape of feet. Therefore they deform our feet and mess them up. And that's our foundation. So if your foundation sucks, really hard to build something strong on a weak foundation. Um, so anyway, I started this, um, network called the, the foot collective and it's a health education network. Our mission is help people reclaim responsibility for their health. So help people understand how to take care of themselves, because that's really the key to sustain, to fixing the health problem is like help people understand the basics that they should be taught in school of how to just take care of themselves so they don't break down. Uh-huh. And so, uh, but I've been into like, as a physio, as a physio, just starting to practice, I had a patient in like 2014, that was a computer, uh, computer programmer. And he mentioned Bitcoin to me and he wouldn't oh, yeah. stop mentioning it. And so on like after the third or fourth round, I was like, all right, screw this. I'll get a Bitcoin just so that I have, I can actually be literate in these conversations we have. I think I paid 140 bucks for the first coin. And from there, it's just like been this deep dive obsession of like, wow, I didn't realize how much I didn't know about money, despite me using money every day. Brilliant. And so, so that's, and then the, the, the tipping point for me wanting to devote way more energy into Bitcoin was actually March of this year when I was watching the Bitcoin conference, which is where I saw you speak. And I was like, yes, fellow Canadian in an age group that you would not expect people to actually like be, um, you know, vouching for Bitcoin. And that, so that's where I got introduced to you. But when Jack Knowledge came on and his thing of introducing uh, the El Salvador uh, news was just like, this is the most important area to work in, in my entire life. Yeah. Uh, this is a once in a like millennium opportunity to be alive that. at a time like this and be, right. have the freedom to do this. I need to put my energy into Bitcoin because this is what I truly love to learn and talk about. And you. so that's kind of how I came into this space. And um, yeah, and, and one of the big realizations I had was, okay, I'm spending all this energy trying to convince the lucky people. And I use lucky interchangeably with privilege because like we're born in Canada. We're already lucky. We have white skin. We're already lucky. Um, you have good parents that actually love you and take care of you. We're already lucky. 
So I'm born into this lucky place and our target audience is mostly people in North America, which are lucky, right? They live in a world that like they have basic human necessities provided to them if they're willing to access them. Why am I working so hard to convince people to take care of themselves? Like, why am I working so fucking hard to convince someone that they should be healthy? And I realized that like the framework I use now is, okay, there's four problems um, and they're all layered hierarchically. You have the health problem on top, which is the most superficial one. Under that, you have the education problem with how kids are put into like what kids learn in school. And the education problem is, is a, is the direct cause of the health problem. Cause if you don't learn about how to be healthy, you end up not being healthy in a world that revolves around disease. Then you have the governance problem and then you have the money problem. And the money problem is literally the foundation, the root cause of what causes everything above it, because money determines governance, which determines education, which determines health. And so I'm kind of like, I really got stuck where I'm like, I'm working so hard with health when in reality, the broken money is the root cause of the health problem. So maybe I should just go deeper into this area that to fix money, because now we actually have a solution to it. People just don't know about it yet. I love it. So that's how I came into it. And you know, did you grow up in Ottawa your whole life or have you, uh, did you, uh, you did it? I grew up in Ottawa. My whole, my family lived in Australia for three years when I was younger. So I've lived there. I went to West, I went to Ottawa U for undergrad in biology and psychology. And then I did physio, um, at Western. Okay. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like this is the most meaningful, uh, exciting work that I've ever done in my life. And it's like, you know, I just, and so with, uh, the foot collective, I kind of, unwound myself um, from the leadership role in a lot of the different projects or I basically tried to decentralize the leadership. I took a lot of inspiration from Bitcoin where it's like, okay, well, if I have leaders that are kind of self-sustaining our individual products, projects, I don't have to close everything down. I can just remove myself as the necessary element and just focus on how do I make sure that our endowment is managed responsibly, Beautiful. is in Bitcoin. And then how do I research services like Ledin where we can borrow uh, from that Bitcoin without ever selling it and fund our work with literally just this pool of sound money that we now have stored away in Beautiful. a vault that is secured so that nothing on planet earth, not even the earth's computer power could fuck with it. And like, yeah. that makes me feel really good. Um, awesome. So, yeah. man. Well, that's, that's a beautiful story. And it's uh, that's how, you know, different, different uh, walks of life, if you will, or different, uh, 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 studies, uh, you know, uh, engineering versus sociology or biology and, uh, you know, your undergrad and then your, uh, your, uh, uh, Western degree in, uh, physiology. Uh, you know, it's just cool that it doesn't mean, you know, you have to be a certain, uh, you, you, you can come from all different areas. And the most important thing I think you hit on is go to a third world where this is actually changing their lives. I'm in touch with the guys from Ibex Mercado who originally started in Guatemala, but now are working very diligently in, uh, in El Salvador with the uh, onboarding of merchants like Starbucks and Kentucky fried chicken. It's accepting Bitcoin in El Salvador. Now just think about what that means. I wonder what the people in Seattle are thinking about this. I'm very curious. It means any other country that onboards Bitcoin as legal tender, Starbucks and KFC already have the previous experience in El Salvador. And they'll just say, okay, just roll out the same model from El Salvador (laughs) over to you. And eventually it comes to North America and Canada is in bad shape right now. Okay. So we're very privileged, but we are in horrible shape. Our politicians have, uh, you know, 
Mr. Trudeau, uh, when he says he doesn't care about monetary policy, when he smirks and says, forgive me if I don't care about monetary policy. That's a joke. It's it, a, that's really very a joke. unfortunate because if he was the CEO of a company, he would have been fired on the spot and it would have been He would nice. never have gotten the job. He's not qualified for that yeah, job. Yeah. So it's, 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 we're in a situation where we are somewhat, uh, uh, at risk because of the lack of intellectual uh, honesty and as well intellectual curiosity. All that Trudeau wants is a, he wants to run the G7. Uh, it's so obvious. And he wants to win a popularity contest. He's that's it. He's not yeah. qualified. Like you want to do that? Do your own little like yeah. drama show, but don't put everyone in Canada Correct. at risk and start yeah. making unborn people in Canada. Oh yeah, man. Be born with debt that you oh, yeah. literally just. Well, so we are. So I'm a boomer, and I say this often. And I'm going to have to wrap this up shortly, uh, Nick, yeah, but, but here's, here's the truth, okay? Uh, I'm a boomer, and my boomer generation is the most selfish generation that I believe has existed within the last, uh, you know, my granddad fought in two world wars, okay? Um, and I'm a boomer who has never, uh, you know, who has benefited from the sacrifices of our previous generations, but then we're too soft. We don't want to put our own sweat and... Uh, and, uh, you know, risk our own uh, stability, we're pulling forward gains that our children that should accrue to our children, because we just, you know, we can't do things like pay down our debt responsibly. We're living at the expense of future generation. It's, it's, it's disgraceful. As a boomer, I want to try and change, uh, you know, that, that uh, um, uh, narrative, uh, yeah. you know, because it is all about selfishness and yeah. people who are privileged in the fiat system they're very selfish generally i agree and so i know you got to go let's i just want one last question sure. and then we'll wrap things up so for someone who knows nothing about bitcoin literally just heard the word bitcoin uh for the first time in this conversation and maybe didn't hear our previous conversation um in one minute how would you describe to them how would you make Bitcoin relevant to them? How would you make it something that maybe is worth putting a little bit of energy right. to understand better in 60 seconds? So really just one point and then we'll wrap yeah. this up. It's very simple. I, 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 I describe the current fiat system and what's wrong with that. And it means you need to get exposure to other hard assets. It means you need to have exposure to gold and real estate and things that will maintain their value. Now, the problem is those things like real estate, everyone's saying I'm making so much money on my house. You're not making any money on your house. It's just that the unit of account called a dollar that's used to value your house is going down. So it takes more of these dollars to buy the same house. If right. you measured your house price in gold over time, hasn't changed and right. nor should it, but these are hard assets and Bitcoin very simply is the best hard asset. And it's a technology developed to store your value of energy and time that you expend today, you store it over time and space so you can consume it in the future and not get debased. Very simple. Math and code. Math is the base layer of language. doesn't matter whether you speak Chinese or French or English or Spanish. You all understand math. Right. Math is the base layer. These other languages are second layer. Yeah. Math and code is Bitcoin. You can't mess with it. It's a thing of beauty. As an engineer, this is longer than one minute, but that's okay. engineers love math or they need to because that's what engineering is. And that's why I love Bitcoin. Okay. Uh, not everyone will understand the beauty of the math behind it, but what they can understand, and I'm trying to tie this up, is the, 
the fragility of our fiat system. It started when I started working at the Royal Bank in 1988, and I realized it was insolvent, i.e. on the verge of bankruptcy. Damn, that's not a good thing. So buy some Bitcoin, get up to 5% of your portfolio, and then we'll talk. Now, the problem is when you get 5% of your portfolio in Bitcoin, you forget about all the other 95% of your portfolio and you just focus on this. Oh my God, it's going up, it's going down. Buy 5%, let's have a date in the next 20 years, okay? 20 years to this day, you'll still be alive. I'm hoping I'm alive and we should have a recap and we'll talk about where the price of Bitcoin is, okay? Nick, it's been great meeting you. Um, You're doing great stuff. Uh, I'm happy to be part of your podcast and if you'd ever like me to, to join it again, we should get together for a beer if you're ever in Montreal or Toronto to. or when yeah. I'm in Ottawa, we'll look each other up. Okay. Cause you're, you're doing some great stuff and I'm uh, happy for, uh, to, to now have a friendship with you. Well, thank you for being so generous with your time, Greg. I've seen you on a bunch of podcasts. You're extremely generous and you are being the example for what boom, like you said, the boomer generation was selfish. You're essentially helping to right that wrong. And, uh, so thank you for joining us at the Stoa today. Um, I look forward to doing another round, having a beer at one of your pubs and uh, shooting the shit about Bitcoin. And to anyone listening, uh, thank you for being here and for your attention. And we'll we'll catch you at the next conversation at the Bitcoin Stoa. Well done. Thank you. Thank you.